This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one, in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Ofer Freiman, CEO and co-founder of Sight. Before venturing into tech entrepreneurship, he was previously with Hewlett Packard, Shuncha Jungo, and Microsoft. Ofer brings in 22 years of passion in machine learning and deep learning. Ofer, welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. I'm sure I missed out on a lot. If not, why don't you fill in some of the blanks on your background? Okay, thank you. We're going to jump right into it. Um, how did you get started in your career? What was like the first job you, you took? Okay, so my career in computer science started when I was a student in the Technion. That was in the year 1996, so that means that I'm pretty old, <laughs> and I was lucky to finish summa cum laude every semester, so it was easy back then to find a very good job when you had good grades, and I started in Microsoft. That was my first job as a student doing R&D, and then my second job was when I finished university or the Technion, which is in Haifa. I moved back to the center, and I worked for a company called Django. Then I started as an R&D developer, moved to managing R&D teams. Okay. And so what was something that at Microsoft when you were there that stuck with you, if there is anything? Like something that you know that you found that you really said, okay, this is something that I could t- take with me and that you've been able to really expand. Is there something that, that you, whether the first or the second job that you felt, wow, that's a, that's a good, you know, something that I really learned that's going to stick with me? Yeah, I guess you learn how big corporates work. And back then, there was no SaaS. I mean, it was all on-premise. It was a different software than today. And one thing that really surprised me is how quick they are in spending money on a new project and then deciding that this project is not relevant. It's actually like having lots of startups within a big corporate, and they have lots of funds. They can move funds around. And when you work for a startup then it's different because you know that the startup is, is it needs to survive. First of all, it's survival mode. Then you need to, you know that you're a part of a, you're a big part of a smaller thing, but you need to help it make it survive. And it's more exciting to me than working for a big corporate that, yes, it's a new maybe project, the most exciting project of the company, but it's not really something that you can make such a big impact. So if somebody is looking for big impact and working for a small company that is growing, then startup, for me, is more exciting than big corporate company. Got it. So pretty much you're just a, a, you know, a, a cog in the machine at the big companies. Well, you can look at it that way, but you, you, are, <laughs> you, you can't really make an impact, in, in, an impact on companies that are huge because you're, you're one person in a huge, huge system, already very successful system. It, it's It's... 
it's 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 work. It's also can be exciting to some people. It depends what what people are looking for. So so, so leaving the leaving that type of company. So how do you get then into the you know startup world? And then I'll go back to my other question. But let's just focus on like you know. So you're you're at the big corporation. When did you get the bug? When did you realize that, okay, you know, I don't, it's great that I got the experience, but I don't want to be there anymore. I want to do something smaller. So I, I always wanted to join a startup. So I worked for Microsoft. I was a poor student. I needed the money and they had great food uh, when you work there. So I was in a survive, a different kind of survival mode. Just when, when he means poor student, he meant monetarily poor not a poor student in the sense of bad grades just no very good grades (laughs) not a lot of money and food to to spare so I I I worked for Microsoft it was a great experience but then when I finished and had some software experience I could really choose where I want to work and I looked for an exciting startup Django for me was the most exciting startup out of many what did they do well, uh, the the thing that excited me the most was they developed software that automatically developed software. Okay. So it's kind of, it wasn't really AI, but there was very unique automation there. The company was acquired by NDS and NDS was acquired by Intel. So it, it was successful in, mm-hmm. in its nature. Got it. Okay, so is there something that you failed at early on that, that bothered you? Like, uh, you know, whether it was... Again, one of the a project they did it, one of the first shops were in college, and then how did you overcome it? Okay, so I think that we're going into a subject that I really like to talk about. <laughs> first of all, my idea of when you're cooking break eggs, uh, don't call it failure, call it let's break eggs to make a very good omelet. Because the more eggs you break, the better your omelet becomes, you become more professional. So, of course, I failed a lot in my career. What, what I like to do as a student as well was to fail up front. I went straight to looking at the exams that you take at the end of the course. So I wanted, okay, what do they expect from me at the end? Let's, let's try and answer some question and fail at those questions. And then I'll be more prepared to understand what I need to listen to or what I need to learn. So I think that what people call failure, which I think is a negative word, should be let's try until we succeed and let's not let anyone tell us you cannot do it. I mean, I've heard the words, you'll fail, you can't do it, uh, go back to being an employee because the world of successful <coughs> entrepreneurs is for better people than you are, etc., etc. So people like to put other people down. So, so how did you know so... How do you overcome that? I mean, it was again, I, I know that, you know, again, podcasting, also why podcasting. So you just have to persevere. Like my, my mentality is just forget about what other people say, do what you want to do. And hopefully, like saying, breaking out these things will happen, right? Things will, you'll get better. You'll, so how did, did you do the same thing? Did you just ignore the noise and just say, okay, I don't care what people say. I want to go into the star world. I want to do my own thing, you know, et cetera. Or did you have another, you know, another way? Yeah, I think that, what you said is exactly true. You need to, it's, it's hard. You need to ignore what other people say. You need to not get angry. You need to make nothing out of what they say because you have your belief, your passion. They do not know what goes on inside of you. They do not know if you're going to be successful or not. They have no clue. And if somebody says to you that you cannot do something, I, I just think you sh- shouldn't 
ever be close to people like that. Be, go go be close to people who tell you, who, who give you positive and very constructional or cons- constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. Like, look, yeah, if you do this, you can improve on what you're doing. Not you will fail, not you will not be able to. That That stuff I completely ignore. I think it makes them really jealous and little people if they tell you that you will fail in something that they may have failed or they succeeded, but they don't want others to succeed because they want to feel special. So it surprisingly happens a lot. There's a lot of people, by the way, that are positive and helpful and they will encourage you along the way. Stick to them. Don't stick to the negative people. No, listen to your own guy. That's a great question. I, I'll come to that later. But, you know, just in terms of, you know, when you when you started site, you know, did you come across VCs that were supportive? But I, I, that'll be later. I, I want to actually go from there into site and really, you know, so why don't you tell us a little bit about site so people who are listening, um, you know, my ever-growing listenership, tell them about, about, about site and then we'll talk about how you, you know, how you came up with the idea and how you, you built it. So a few years ago, I tried to find something for my wife online, and there were so many deep learning technologies and companies doing what people call AI today. And I said, okay, to Lee, my wife, I'll find this for you. And I used everything from Cortexica, ASAP 54, just visual. Then it goes on and on and on and on, and nothing really worked. They all showed not accurate results, bad results. So what I did was, I was surprised, I was baffled why that is, and then I contacted a guy called Helge Voss, who I admired for, I think, about 20 years. Why? Because he developed a lot of machine learning algorithms from scratch. CERN actually selected him, selected his open source AI platform because it outperformed anything else. Same data, usually machine learning is bound to the data, so different machine, different boosted uh, decision trees algorithm, which was once before deep learning used mm-hmm. a lot, with the same data would give you probably the same accuracy results. His algorithm used to outperform by a lot all the other algorithms. He always find ways to tweak, ways to do things more exciting and, and better. And that's why CERN, if you don't know CERN, CERN is a central European nuclear mm-hmm. Something, something. <laughs> and, it's a wilderness complex. And in turn, by the way, a lot of things are five years ahead of the Silicon Valley. Like they invented the touch screen. They, they created it. And touch screen is now one of the most popular. We use touch screen every day. And they invented the internet. They invented a lot, a lot of things in turn. Their idea was to reproduce the creation of the world so that they built tunnels under Geneva. It's mm-hmm. a very famous hard, large hardened collider experiment. And they knew they were going to collect billions of data points every day and they had to analyze them quickly and very, very accurately every day. Because And that's what Helge did. He managed to build something that could detect what is a, bo- a, a God particle, a Higgs boson particle, and what is not in a very accurate way, very efficient. So that's why I admired him. And then I contacted him and said, you're my guru. Why doesn't visual search for fashion works? I mean, they're using deep learning. They're then doing lots of... So, so, so you went to a nuclear scientist or, you know, an engineer, you know, and 
<laughs> the same principles that you look to analyze, why can't you take that to analyze, you know, you know, in the, in the, in the clothing on the internet? In yeah, so it, it, it sounds strange, but Helge's passion was machine learning and deep learning and actually finding the needle in the haystack. Mm-hmm. For example, Higgs boson is a very complex image to analyze and to compare with what's not Higgs boson. So what he did was visual search or image recognition, high scale, very hard to do mm-hmm. for, of course, physics, but the same principles apply to any visual search. So I asked him and then he he said, he, he, he did know me. He asked, are you Israeli? Are you sitting in Tel Aviv opening, opening a startup? Because if you are, I want to join. And then we became friends. Interesting. And, uh, yes. So, this, so he, he, he had the bug. In a sense, the, he wanted us to open a startup from, I guess, did you, the last 20 years. Did you expect that to happen? When, no. <laughs> and, when, and when that did happen, we were like, oh, I, I just hit like, the jackpot. I, you know, just like. No, no, no. I thought, okay, that's interesting. Let's talk to the guy because I'm, I'm curious now. I mean, this guy is German, not, not Jewish. He's mm-hmm. been to Israel a couple of times from what he told me. He loves Israel. He. It, it was it was unique. So we came to my house. I lived in London back then. He mm-hmm. came to my house. We became very good friends, and then we decided with the other founders that yes, we'll so, take so this challenge. How long did that happen? Right from the time you and your wife you were, you know, were figuring out that there's a problem to speaking, you know, to you know, and then starting the company. I'll ask you how long did it happen since you started doing. Those podcasts since you decided. So for me, it's just one long day. I don't even remember. It's been like five years and and it's just seemed like one. I I mean, founders are going to, founders that already founded companies, etc. I'm not not talking about them, but early stage, like very, very early stage founders. This is going to be a journey that is going to consume a lot. It's going to be a lot of fun, but going to be consumed going to consume a lot so last four or five years seemed like one long day mm-hmm. how long did it take it took took a couple of months at least i, I don't even know okay it just seemed like um it went quickly strange. By, by the way i i tried i tried to open several startups and what people call failed Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot from those failures, and I think it's important to. So, 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 what, what, would, what were some of the startups that again? I just so I, I started a number of startups as well. I failed. Well, I wouldn't say failed. Let's say I broke eggs. I mean, you know, I, I'm still biding my time for my next one. Um, but what were some of the ideas? Because you know, what I do find is either a you know a lot of the ideas that were back then, and again, my first start was in '99. We're too early for it, right? The technology wasn't around, you know, APIs weren't around back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that helps a lot of people tap into the data that you need. You know, could you give me an idea of what was one or two of them that you thought of that just didn't take off? Well, the one that didn't take off was, and it's hard, it's even hard for me to remember right now, but one, I was very young. I had my, I don't know, second job after Django. I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. And then I knew this guy in the U.S. who was a sales guy, and we decided to build some sort of unique one acceleration. And it was back then a box, mm-hmm. like physical hardware. <laughs> and we used Linux as the software, etc. 
So I was very eager, passionate. I left work. I stayed at home. I spent all my savings building it. And then this guy told me that uh, he's not going to leave his job. That's too risky, etc. So we did nothing. I had a product and I lost all my savings. So I had to go back to work. I tried to get funding then. I think that two things. One, people got excited when they, they saw back then a live product, but funds were in a miserable position. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of passion and a lot of energy to to get funding back then, although I was so young and inexperienced. But at the end of the day, then the, the, the salesperson in the US, when he left, I didn't know how to sell stuff. So by the way, one thing I did in my career is I thought, okay, I can't really rely on somebody to sell that stuff. I got to understand why companies buy stuff, what makes the business world move. So I moved to the UK and became a salesperson from R&D, from managing R&D groups. I moved to sales. And that's something that really helped me build this company. Because I, I can see the world of how you sell and how you increase sales. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that, but also how you build great technologies and how you connect those two. How you don't... One one thing that I saw, for example, that didn't work well in a lot of startups was the fact that the company was very, although it was a startup, it was very siloed. All of a sudden, sales become the great champions of the companies and R&D are neglected. There's no connection between sales and R&D. Here in this company, salespeople and R&D talk a lot. They empower each other. They okay. create some passion around the products to each other and around ideas and that's that's the best uh, that's the one of the biggest lessons that I've learned and again I, I came back with from the UK with a lot of with a lot of money one thing I can tell you if you're an Israeli and you want to open a startup this country is not easy it's not easy to open a startup when you don't have a lot of money. We we were lucky. We came from England with a lot of money. This Having is after the, this is after your second startup. You startup that you mentioned that you wasted all your savings or yeah, that was savings. when I was young. young I think okay. I opened. I tried to create two, three startups. Since then, not 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 they didn't took so much of my time, energy, and savings. But site was the next one where okay. I really. Uh, spend a few hundred thousand shekels at least on of your own of your own capital my own capital just to support ourselves because it was hard to get funding it was it's a hard we moved from London here mm-hmm. and I thought this was the startup nation but one thing is that the uh, Madana Rashi the, okay, yeah. so, how do you call it the chief the chief science the chief science office there was a guy there that came and he said look we don't need people like you here in Israel go back to Europe and open that startup seriously and uh, he was sexually abusive he was so I was sickened by the Madana Rashi I think it's Every time I pay taxes and it goes to the Madan Rashi, I feel, oh my God, this is not going to the right. This is going to. He just wanted to tell us to quit, go back to. What year was this? This company will not succeed. This is what, five years ago? Or? This was, yeah, around five years ago. So. Oh, good thing is that they change. <laughs> I don't know if they change. This guy is still there. He's still. still there. Very big shot there, and he's. Uh, I don't understand how someone like that could be a part of the Madan Rashi. I think it's a 
I mean, this goes back to this. This what you go back to. You were saying early on is you know the naysayers you just got to push to the side. Yeah, he, he just tried to tell us that we will never succeed. We had a woman as part of our co-founders. Mm-hmm. He's very much against women. Uh, this was just disgusting behavior, and uh, I'm still shocked every time I remember. So I think that founders in Israel. It, 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 it's going to be tough. I mean, it's going to, if the, this country doesn't change and doesn't really become a startup nation, it's, going to, it's not like the UK where it's easy to open a startup. There's lots of money. The government is very supportive. And like in uh, the US where there's a lot of money pouring in. This, this country is tough. There's one thing that is great is the Mahona Yatsu. They're, they're amazing. It was a huge surprise to work with uh, it, they're not really government they're semi-government mm-hmm. but the the my I I don't understand how this country has this uh, Madan Rashid that helps startups here and that that's just I think an embarrassment and a shame for for Israel I hear that I hear that and I <laughs> I hope, you know, you know. Again, I hope that's not the case at all. But I, I do, I do hear that part where they make it more troubling, and the, definitely the the sexual harassment aspect to it is definitely disturbing on that side. I mean, you know, I, I've spoken to a number of women, and you know, for the most part, they're able just to like push forward. You know, I haven't really gotten into the real nitty gritty of, of stories that, that again that I, I've been told. But we're going to keep moving on. So. Um, Let's go back a little bit more in terms of launching the product, right? So you brought everybody, you, you, you brought your team together early on. When did you have a demo? And when did you have a demo enough to say, okay, either bring it to market or bring it to an investor for them to see it? Or did you wait for you to get some traction before you went to an investor for initial funding? Well, luckily, one of the one of the angel investors uh, loved the idea. So he gave us some money before we actually had a product. We actually gave us $200,000 and that helped us with uh, some salaries and building the first prototype. But was the investor in, based in Israel or? In Israel, yeah. In Israel. yeah. He, was an, he was an amazing guy. There's lots of angel investors in Israel that are great. There's actually a list. I don't remember where it is, but there's actually a very long online list. Yeah, we had, I had Guy Gamzu, who's one of the bigger angels in Israel. He was, I'm not sure if you know him, he was my second person I interviewed in my podcast. Oh, really? And then okay. Gigi Levy also, before yeah. he had NFX, he was also a big angel investor. But I, I guess that if you're looking at uh, going to Gigi Levy and all this big those are bigger now. Those and are... everybody just, uh, they, they get too many emails, yeah. too many. So it's better to find the more anonymous and you and, and this is one of the guys you found and yeah. he loved the idea. Uh, Okay. And so when did you start seeing traction from there, right? So you, you got a team, you're able to pay salaries, et cetera, which is always good with a startup instead of, you know, going on fumes. Um, you know, what happened from there? You know? Okay. So what, what happened is that we did lots of quick pivots. So one thing that I, I've learned is never, never go all the way with this one idea. And so we think about what people call failures. We, our goal was to fail as many times as possible to try to hit some sort of product that has product market fit. And then we started having product market fit or the initial results when we worked with some retailers and some use cases that were very successful. And, and then it starts just to 
when you have this one customer that is successful and you know that the other one will also be successful, things start to happen. It took probably six months from those two initial customers to get to a lot more onboarding customers. I mean, there's a saying that very, very good companies, when they hit their first 1 million annual revenue, they do 3x of the revenue, 3x, and then 2x, 2x, 2x. Mm. There's a reason why you don't just do 10 million on the first year. Why don't you <laughs> wait for this one single million and why you only do 3x? It's amazing at the next year is because it, it's a growing pain. You need to just try to grow in, in a fun way, but just to break lots of eggs. Don't lose all your money while you're breaking eggs, but just learn quickly and try to build something. And, and, and it's, it's, if you take me to beginning of 2018, where we didn't have a lot of revenue to now where I'm all confident, of course, if you take me back there, I, I don't have now a list that would help me do things mm -hmm. much differently. Yes, I've got more experience now, but again, you need to believe that you will find something that will work and stick to that belief. So I, I hear that. So I want to talk about your, your, your first two, you know, clients in a sense, because those are the hardest, right? You know, you have a product, you have an idea, you need to pitch, right? So did you go, did you sell it yourself? Did you go and find them? And do you mind if you say, like, who was one of the first yeah. partners that you... So, so Coles, I was introduced to Coles, and I found this amazing woman called Garima from Coles in the U.S., and she was very innovative. She loved the fact that what we did actually works, and she became our first customers. And we, we were still friends until today. Mm -hmm. And the other customer was Boohoo. Boohoo was actually intro introduced and was... A joint work with me and Susan. Susan is our first employee in the UK. She's almost like a semi-co-founder mm -hmm. because she started with us from very early stage and she came from many years in Marks and Spencer and other retailers and she understands also the new fast fashion young generation retailers. And those were the two customers. Now that's it, a big it's a different kind of Coles is a big customer. Like that yeah. is a... No, it's not like some. Yeah, Coles is a major retailer in the yeah. U.S. It's a massive, you know, company. Yeah. So Coles was uh, was it was good to get a name like Coles. Now we have lots of customers. Some that I cannot even say the name. They're like big, the biggest big yeah. uh, shoe manufacturer, maybe sports shoes on mm -hmm. the planet, etc. So, but yeah, the two. I, I think you're saying the two uh, first ones are the hardest. I, for me, if I go back, I think they were the most exciting ones. Mm -hmm. Then when you scale, it becomes <laughs> you become less connected, and those were something that you do alone. Yes, it's hard, but it's also hard to start scaling it. A lot of companies stay within this 1 million UARR mm -hmm. range. We are now doing a lot more than that. Uh, every quarter, new and new, like two million dollars of new customers. So, so then you know, so you, you know, you, let's go to the revenue model in a sense, and then I, I just want to talk about you know the acquisition. So, acquisition is you're looking at retailers to get on board. That's your that's your acquisition method. Yeah, right? customer, customer acquisition. acquisition. Yeah. So that's so you're doing that, and then okay, and then what's the revenue model for for is it it's SaaS. it's SaaS model? Okay. Yeah. 
That's well. Got it. Got it. And um, did you tinker with that when you started with Coles? Like, did you say, oh, we're not even worried about revenue. Let's just see, get out there. Let's prove everything. Let's make sure it's working. And then, you know, roll out a revenue model slowly with them. And is it the same revenue model then as it is today? Well, it's very similar than it is today. I came from companies that did on-premise licenses, and I always loved the software as a service mm-hmm. because one thing that is very, very hard is to start the next year with yeah. just maintenance and support yes. or whatever. So SaaS made sense to me. It also made sense to me that it's an easier sell because you don't sell the permanent license. You sell for 20% of what would be a permanent mm-hmm. license and then you can you start the next year but you can expand. So all the expansion of SaaS, all the SaaS model, everything I read was just I want to, this model works for the customers and work for us. And I think it was obvious, at least for me, it was obvious this is this is the way to go. So how many customers do you have now? If you, you know, ballpark, you don't have to, you know, not to be doing 50 and 100. 50 and, and, and the two that you signed up was when? That's just so you give people... Uh, early 2018. Oh, so, okay. So you're talking about, you know, in, in the span of two years, you went from two to, let's say, you know, oh, that's a 50 or so. That's a... That's a nice amount. Yeah, that's a nice amount. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a nice really amount. Growing that, that's that's and and so when did you bring on? And this goes to my you know the company scaling. When did you start bringing on salespeople into to, well, to help? We, we always brought on salespeople when we brought the right salespeople was in the <laughs> middle middle of twenty eighteen, and then we started to build a very oil sales machine, and then things just connected. Okay. So that's it's, it's, I, I like the fact that you mentioned the right salespeople. So. When did you, you know, how did you find out they were the wrong salespeople to start? I'll I, tell you what, when you're too small and you don't have a name and traction, then it's very hard to get the right salespeople because they would go somewhere else. And so I knew, I think, on the interview that they'll do something, they'll help me out, but it's not the right DNA I'm looking for, probably. But let's give them a chance. But when we started having more customers, started having a really strong name for site, then we could interview people that we were surprised that are coming to our company to be mm-hmm. interviewed. And we got some amazing people that, that interviewed. We hired an, an unbelievable VP of sales and a sales team. And the fact that you can create here in Israel a brand that people like, a company that people like to work with and get talented people, is a major, major thing that helps you scale. Mm-hmm. The, the first thing, the founders has to do everything, but if you want to scale, you have to increase your management team, you have to increase trust in people, you have to bring lots of very good people that are very well motivated. Uh, agreed, 100%. So what is the culture, as you're, again, as you're skin? So, you know, from, you know, when did you close your first, after the 200K, when did you close your first round? And I don't remember the date, but it was it, uh, almost $2 million from Magma and Keshet. Okay. And so when did you start scaling from there to now? How many employees do you have now? We have around 70 employees. Okay. And uh, we are supposed to double it. We, we started really scaling in the mid of 2018, where our sales grew and grew and our revenue grew and grew significantly. Got it. And, and and so when you started scaling, what was the culture that you wanted to create and, and give to your employees, like to, to build? Like, you know, 
is what you, and that's a quick scaling, right? From from that time to you scale very rapidly and find the right employees, putting the processes in place, creating the culture. You know, it, it, you know, did you have a specific culture in mind that you wanted? Well, I have a specific culture in mind. I think that the culture should come from me, but also from the employees. And I've, I, I know a CEO, wow, he's going to kill me if I forget the name. I usually forget <laughs> the name. It's called Tom, but I forget the name that he's the CEO of. Uh, well, Tom, Tom Livne is the mm-hmm. CEO of... And he he showed me the best way to implement culture. But our, our besides implementing it, which is something we're doing right now, the culture that we have, Verbit, Verbit is the company mm-hmm. name. Uh, and he did lots of, uh, of research on how to build the best culture within the company, once, once you choose a culture. So the culture that we have right now coming from me, and it's not yet been processed where people from the company influences, first of all, I think that... Uh, Things that goes without saying, passion, etc. But there is no bullying here. I've seen lots of company where there's one guy who is the best-selling guy or the best technological guy, and he's bullying others, and the the management is afraid of him. They let him do it. This this is not going to happen here. Mm-hmm. And another thing is that we have to work together. We that we can't work in silos. Uh, the uh, one thing very important for me is really obsession about our customer success. The reason we're here is to make them successful. I mean, that's that's the reason we wake up. That's why we build all of this. Without our customer, that uh, there will be nothing. So we, in my opinion, must be obsessed about their success. Mm-hmm. I don't sleep at night if I know there's a customer who is not happy with something that we're doing. And, and how often does that, I mean, that happen, right? When a cu- customer comes to you and says, or, you know, an epic, you know, if, in a sense, uh, egg-breaking, you know, if you want to say that, you know, how quickly were you able to tackle that issue? I mean, were you able to work, like, quickly say, okay, we hear you, we're going to go in there and fix it, or, you so know... It's a very interesting question. When you're small and the founders do the customer success, they usually the customer is very happy before he even says anything. So it's very, very rare, rare that they say they're not happy about something and you're very, very proactive in fixing it or they, they see how fast you move and how proactive you are. When you scale, you can't really work directly with lots of customers. Then when X starts to break, you understand that you didn't really build all the models to explain to your new customer success team how to what is successful onboarding it's in your head but it's not necessarily in their heads and then you have some some failures some problems some things but quickly you learn that you can put things in place to get to make it right so it it was excellent our customer onboarding the success was excellent then it had a drop now it's coming back again to being as successful as it was, even more successful because the product is more mature and the process are in place mm-hmm. and we understand how to make our customers earn more money, be more successful internally. 
but there are lots of growing pains. Like, Got it. So I, I want to talk about, you know, I know you recently re- re- disclosed a big round. I think it was $21.5 million. Mm-hmm. Um, Magma wasn't involved in cash. It was Viola, Storm. Uh, it says that Magma were involved. Oh, oh, they were involved. Okay, yeah. I didn't see that. I did. so my apologies, but I didn't see that in the, okay. in the listing. Yeah. Um, or maybe there was a new investor that they were talking yeah, about. Yeah, the new investors the, were Viola. The, the new league investors, yeah. because Magma kept their kept, rata and they're it. very eager about the company excited. They don't really exist, I think, as a fund anymore, but yeah. they still invested. So, so how how difficult was it, right? To, you know, you go from two, you're raising a, a really big round, and your company's done tre- tremendous over a year and a half to two years. Was it hard? What were some of the challenges? Was what it raised the twenty one? Yeah, I can tell you that raising money becomes easier and easier. Yes, it's still lots of bureaucracy and lots of. But when you start to generate revenue and you grow with revenue every quarter, you will start. People will start chasing you. It the the. You're, the reality turns around like 180 degrees. Instead of you hunting down venture capitals, they hunt you. They send you emails, they want to meet you, they want to keep on track, even though you're, they won't invest in your B round, only in your C round, still want to meet you and talk to you, etc. So you, you're going to get hunted. So the, this, is, this is not going to be more challenging. It's, unless the company starts failing, mm-hmm. then the down round well, is always well, bad. Well, we all know what just happened with WeWork. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, that, that is just, you know... Again, I, a lot of companies should just take heed and, and, and see that as, okay, what you shouldn't be doing. But, you know, did you find that you would you, – you had a lot of people of interest. How do you pick the, the investors that you, ah, you chose? That's a good question. So and, and, and I think that survival for founders is uh, that it's very hard to find investors and you take the one that will put money on the table. And this is the only one. But when you have lots of – Suitors, is yeah, the right yeah. word. You have lots of suitors. You, I, I believe you should choose the right partner for you. The, it, they're going to spend their. You're you going do. to get married to them in the mm-hmm. sense, essentially. So you need to find people that you really like personally. You can feel that they're the same DNA that you can work with, etc. Because there are going to be frictions, misunderstandings, etc. And it's going to be more than even marriage. And you're going to have different objectives at some point. So choose the right partner. And we chose the partner that we thought was the best for us. Not necessarily the venture capital with the best brand mm-hmm. to their name. Yeah, okay. I hear that. I mean, that's uh, it's, it's also good advice. So we have another about, you know, seven minutes or so. So we're going to go more into now, um, you know, some of, I would say, the management aspect to it. And that's what I'd like to ask a lot of CEOs is the, the hardest decision you made as, as, as a CEO here, right? You know, what was one of the harder decisions that you had to make? And, you know, how do you tackle it? Right, and then I'll go more into skill sets and style that you that you've cultivated over time. I think it's always hard when you have to fire someone, and I've learned over time that we we, we recruit people very carefully and try to make sure that they have the same DNA. But sometimes it just doesn't work and it does doesn't fit. So right now I've learned that this person is suffering. You need to let him go to a place where he can flourish. So we do it in a very 
good way of embracing them and helping them with their next journey. But it was hard in the beginning because I wasn't mature enough to understand that I, I need to help someone move to another path. Mm-hmm. Human beings is always the, the hardest challenge and, and, and the most fun, of course. But, and the hardest decision, I don't, I can't recall any, anything that I would say the hardest decision. Okay. Unless you can give me an example. Well, I mean, pivoting, right? Let's say pivoting. Pivoting is always a challenge, especially when you've invested, right? So when, you know, I know when you're, 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 you're head against the wall and it's just not working and you have to say, okay, we have the idea. Let's try, like you're saying, get fit the right market, right? How do, it was pivoting difficult? So I, I told my board up front every time that I saw them that our goal, we did, we have good technology. We don't have a product. We're going to do lots of egg breaking things where we don't, we're not going to be this company that has one big vision and they're going to conquer the world with this specific vision. It's going to fail or not. Mm-hmm. I believe in always testing the water, breaking eggs, building new products, doing a lot of things and not just my vision is the best. And that's what I prepare them always up, up front. And every time I reminded them, when they ask me, well, what is your big, big, big vision? Well, my vision is we want to be the best in AI, maybe for retailers, maybe for publishers, mm-hmm. maybe for this, but we're going to try until something sticks, until we find that the, product that fit, fit. Or, or something like that. Yeah. So uh, that's then. And again, I think that there may be some people that have an idea that just works from scratch. But I think there's like so rare that most of the successful company are ones that had to pivot a lot. I've learned a lot from my first job at Django with Ofer Wilansky and Derek Schwigman. They pivoted a lot and they did it very quickly and efficiently. And that's their goal is to create lots of pivots and mm-hmm. always successful with that approach. Got, got it. So I know you mentioned a mentor before. Did you, I mean, did you, who did you turn to as you're building site? Did you... Turn to someone outside the company for advice. You, your angel investor was he a, a sounding board that you could go to and saying, "Listen, you know, I have a, a lot of choices here. How do I make the best choice in terms of an investor?" Or did you rely more upon yourself? Okay, so it, it's a mix. I, I I like to hear a lot of suggestions. Mm-hmm. Have mentors. I personally have a mentor right now. Is an American Jewish person, but he built lots of very, very big companies managing a thousand people plus, etc. Mm-hmm. And again, you need to listen, but you are the only one who understand the reality of your company. So you need to listen, but always adjust what they're saying to either they're wrong because they don't know the reality or yes, their advice is solid for my reality. So listening to advice is very, very important, but understanding how to filter the right ones between the bad ones, or not bad ones, but not suitable for your situation ones. Also, Ofer Vilansky that uh, I worked for at Django helped me at the beginning of this company. He actually introduced me to Venture Capitals and was very supportive uh, of our company. Okay, and so what did you want to be when you were 15? 
This is a little, you know, out of the I, box I question. Think, I, I really don't remember, <laughs> but I guess my mother wanted me to be a doctor. I probably wanted to be a professional <laughs> surfer. And okay, you got it. And um, and you know, in terms of habits, right? Is there something that you do on a daily basis that keeps you focused or keeps you, um, you know, sharp in the sense of, you know, of Okay, if I don't do this, I'm out of whack, or I need yeah. to do this to start the day. So I cha- I changed my diet uh, to one that I have more energy and a lot more energy. I need to sleep less, and then I started exercising because that diet gave me lots of energy. And exercising, I think the body, mind, soul are very connected. So you need to make sure that your body functions in the right way in order for your mind to be very sharp and you eating food that makes you sleepy and not exercising are all things that you think you don't have time because you have to work, work, work and keep on doing, but then you miss out on exercising, then it will hit you. It will hit you. Your back will hurt, your head will hurt, you'll be more tired. So I'm trying to exercise three times a week at least and doing things that I know will help me function well, eat very healthy food, and that's it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. For all those uh, listening, be sure to subscribe to the Plugged In Podcast on Apple, um, on Spotify, on uh, Google Play, wherever, we're everywhere. Uh, thank you so much. It's uh, great to be with you. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.